It's May birthday time for my Patreon subscribers. I want to say happy birthday to Stacy, Rachel S., Yasmin, and Summer. I hope you all have a great birthday and month, and you get to enjoy some downtime for yourselves on your birthday. So, happy birthday. A well-regarded doctor went missing after a mysterious phone call, and over 19 years later, it doesn't appear the police are any closer to knowing what happened to her. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you've listened before. Also, just quick plug for the YouTube channel. It's really growing, and... I'm excited to see that. I have different cases over there. Tend to be shorter than the ones I do here, though this week, that's not necessarily the case because this episode is a little bit of a shorter one. I do want to thank Patty for requesting this episode and Jess for helping with the research. I am working down my very long suggestion list that you all have sent in of tons of cases. I'm trying to get to as many of them as I can over the next several months, years, decades. Who knows how long I'll be podcasting. I am currently getting suggestions faster than I'm checking them off the list, but I really am doing my best. And I don't want to dismiss your suggestions just because there isn't enough for an hour-long episode. So after I just did three in a row that were over an hour long, It's a good time to weave in a little bit of a shorter case that does need more attention on it. I do suspect that next year there will be more of a push to get the media involved because it will be the 20-year anniversary of the disappearance of Dr. Cheryl Pearson. But as a long-term missing persons case, it needs steady media presence to get the information out to get it to the right person who may have the key to solving it. So let's start by talking about Cheryl Pearson. She grew up in Jackson, Tennessee, where her parents were both educators. Her father was the first Black principal of a predominantly white school in the entire region, which alone made news. Education and access to education were always important topics in the family, and Cheryl really absorbed these lessons. She went to the University of Tennessee after she graduated high school. Then in 1987, she earned her degree in chemical engineering. After that, she went to medical school at Meharry Medical College, which is a historically Black college in Nashville. Cheryl clearly loved Tennessee. She grew up there, did her undergrad work there, she did medical school there, and she never left. In the late 1990s, she moved to the Memphis area where she worked as a pediatrician. She lived in the suburb of Bartlett and commuted to work. Having dealt with type 1 diabetes since she was a child, Cheryl was very good at connecting with young patients and empathizing with them when they had to go through medical issues or medical procedures. Pretty much as long as she could remember, She had to be mindful of her health, and she understood what that meant to a child and from a child's perspective. 
Part of Cheryl's love for Tennessee included a love of the Memphis Grizzlies, a basketball team. She had season tickets, and on Friday, January 4th, 2002, 37-year-old Cheryl Pearson went to the game at the Pyramid Arena. Cheryl was at the game alone, but that wasn't uncommon. Just watching a game live was her idea of a perfect Friday night. While she was at the game, Cheryl talked to her mom on the phone. She made a comment about not feeling well, just generally lightheaded and a bit weak. It could have just been that she was coming down with something, but with having diabetes, this also could have been a sign she was either dehydrated or her blood sugar had dropped. It has been reported that her diabetes was severe, which I interpret to mean difficult to control. But being that she was 37 years old and a doctor and having lived with this for most of her life, I am sure Cheryl knew what to do in this situation. She felt well enough to drive home at the end of the game. Cheryl left the arena around 10.30 and headed straight to her house. Two of her friends met her at the house to hang out for a little bit, and they left around 1 a.m. There weren't any reports from them that Cheryl seemed disoriented at this point, so I assume she had treated whatever was causing her earlier symptoms. One of the friends, a woman named Andrea, said that Cheryl mentioned she was watching her sister Lorinda's children the next day while Lorinda went to work. Cheryl loved being an aunt and was looking forward to having them over for the day. Andrea and the other friend left Cheryl's house at 1 a.m., and when Lorinda got there at 7 a.m. to drop the kids off, Cheryl wasn't home. Even Cheryl's car was gone. Some people in this situation might think that their sister flaked, their sister forgot, which is 100% what I would think. But Lorinda has a different sister than I have. She knew Cheryl was too reliable to have done that. Not only was she looking forward to the time with the children, she wouldn't have left Lorinda without a babysitter last minute like that. When Lorinda couldn't reach Cheryl, she became concerned that Cheryl may have had a car accident or a medical emergency while she was out driving. So she called their parents, who left their home in Jackson, Tennessee, and headed straight towards Cheryl's house in Bartlett. And Lorinda also called the police. It took Cheryl's parents about an hour and 20 minutes to get to Bartlett. And when they got there, it is reported that they cleaned her house. And we've heard about this before, like in the Springfield 3 case, a combination of anxious energy the need to feel like you're doing something useful, and just the absolute denial that something really bad could have happened. In this instance, they were worried about a car accident or a medical thing that happened while she was out, not an abduction from the house or a murder. And there certainly wasn't anything in the house to make them think something bad had happened there. No signs of a break-in, nothing was stolen, everything was in its place, and it looked like Cheryl had just walked out the front door, and she'd be back any moment. It was only on closer inspection that they could see that there were things that weren't quite right. 
Cheryl's pager and cell phone were left behind at the house. She normally had these things with her, and she especially would have that night. She was a doctor, and she was on call in those overnight hours. If Cheryl had left her home for some reason, she would have taken them with her. Even if it was something small, like realizing she didn't have something she needed for the kids and she ran to the corner store, her phone and pager would have been with her. She was on call. And that was an angle the police checked out had Cheryl been called away to work. Her phone and pager showed no contact from the hospital or her answering service. But it did show she did get a phone call at 1.58 a.m., about an hour after her friends left. The call was answered, but it only lasted five seconds. One source said it lasted a bit less than two minutes, but everything else said five seconds. Either way, it was a lead, but it turned out to not be a very good one because the call traced back to a public payphone at a gas station convenience store about half a mile from her house. There was no telling who had made that call. An attempt to dust the phone for prints gave them nothing usable. I'm sure they just got a smear and blur of overlapping partials. And the security cameras from the gas station weren't that great. And even so, they were too far away from the phone to see anything. As far as we know, as far as has been made public, the caller never got in the range of any cameras. Because the call was so brief, it could have been a wrong number. But since it was answered and Cheryl went missing within hours of it, it's hard not to think that it was significant. We've seen coincidences in cases before, yes, but this would be a very big one for someone to get a call from a payphone at nearly 2 a.m., and then vanish, and the two not be connected. If the call was closer to two minutes long, maybe there was a ruse to get Cheryl to leave the house, something rushed, something urgent, so she left so quickly she did forget her phone and pager. But if the call was only five seconds long, like most sources say, That's not nearly enough time for someone to lure Cheryl from her house under some pretense. How much can you really say in a five-second phone call? But if the caller had prearranged to meet Cheryl and all he or she had to say was, oh, I'm here, then maybe. But Cheryl hadn't said anything about having plans at 2 a.m. to see someone. She didn't mention it to the friends who were just there at 1 a.m., And seeing as she was babysitting at 7 a.m. in the morning, it seems she would be more interested in getting a few hours of sleep than going out again. But we are getting dangerously close to being a few ripples of speculation away from the evidence. And that is always something that happens in cases like this where there isn't a lot of evidence. If the call was nearly two minutes long, I do think Cheryl was lured out on some false pretense. If it was five seconds long, I think it was most likely someone who was just checking to see if Cheryl was home. They then went over to her house to either lure or force her out. Those are my theories, but you can reach out on social media 
or email to let me know what you think. Now, this phone call is the last point on the timeline until Lorinda showed up with the kids at 7 a.m. So sometime between 2 a.m. with the phone call, which was answered, and 7 a.m., Cheryl and her car left the home. What may have happened in those five hours has been a mystery for nearly 20 years. I imagine if this happened today, we would have information from some neighbor's ring, doorbell, or security camera. The accessible price of home security cameras and doorbell cameras have really been a game changer in cases these days, and I promise I am not launching into an ad. I just feel like there have been so many cases lately where the neighbors had a camera and they caught something important. We had it in the Patricia O'Connor case I covered a month ago. Then on YouTube, I covered the shooting death of Pastor David Evans. A camera was vital in solving that case. Then I covered the case of Linda Stoltzfus. And I will probably release a full podcast episode on that case when the legal side is resolved. But even in Amish country, cameras were involved. And then there are cases that I haven't covered, or at least not yet, like Shanann Watts and Gannon Stauk. So many home security cameras are giving us clues, but we're not there yet in 2002 when Cheryl disappeared. While Cheryl's family was waiting on developments from the investigation, they made up flyers to hand out as they did their own search. With her car gone, it was still a concern she had a diabetic medical emergency that night, either while driving or while home, and then she left her house disoriented. And if they could find her and her car quickly enough, they could hopefully render aid. So a lot of the searching at the early stages was looking for her car. Family and friends drove around the neighborhoods around her in parking lots looking for that car. And they did find her car early on Monday, January 7th, which was two days after Cheryl was reported missing. It was found two miles north of her home at an apartment complex, and it was parked near a wooded area that bordered the complex. Between Cheryl's home and the apartment complex was pretty much just a small neighborhood, and then a golf course, and then the apartment complex. The woods near the car isn't what I would consider a great forest, but they were significantly deep and dense. They were carefully searched for any evidence, but nothing was found. The investigators also went door-to-door asking residents of the complex if they saw anything, ideally who parked the car, but even a ballpark of when the car was left there would be good information. But no one could exactly pinpoint when the car showed up. It did seem a little odd that it wasn't spotted earlier being so close to the house. The family searches almost surely included that parking lot. One possibility is that they simply missed it. The area where it was found wasn't hidden, but it wasn't the most public part of the parking lot. There were things blocking it. You couldn't see it from the main road because of the apartment complex building. And then even from the side road that it cuts off of, there are trees there. There were likely other cars parked that could have blocked the view. 
The other possibility is that the car was dumped after they drove through the parking lot searching. They missed it because it wasn't there yet. And I think the next piece of evidence makes that a distinct possibility. I mean, normally, I would say they probably missed it while driving around. Things get missed. But this car was clean. Clean, clean, clean. Detailed clean. The police didn't even find Cheryl's prints in her own car. Both inside and out, this car had not just been wiped down, but it had been cleaned. This type of cleaning would have taken time. So my theory is that the person who dumped it had it for several hours, if not a full day, before they dumped it in the parking lot, likely late at night where they would run less of a risk of being seen. There were things found in the car, if not prints and forensics. In the trunk was Cheryl's medical bag, and the bag also had some of Cheryl's personal items in it. What exactly that means has not been released. They also found Cheryl's keys locked in the trunk, as well as the ticket to the basketball game she had attended on Friday. They also found $140 in cash in a bank envelope near the front seat. No one has said if it was common for Cheryl to carry that much cash or have it in her car. Did she have an intention that she needed that specific amount in cash and she just had it for a reason? Or if the money is part of the mystery, part of why did she have it? Is it part of why she left the house in the first place? What is this $140? That's not a thread that has been made public. The most important thing left behind was Cheryl's medication, which included her insulin, which is a life-saving medication. I read in one place that Cheryl had a pump, which wasn't super common in 2002. But shots or a pump, she wouldn't have left for very long without the things she needed to control her diabetes. So when it hit day two or three of Cheryl being gone, the family was at this point extremely worried. One theory that was looked into, not that it was really considered, it just had to be ruled out, was that Cheryl left to start a new life somewhere. Her bank accounts had not been touched after her disappearance. There were no signs Cheryl worked as a doctor again, which would have been the easiest way for her to start her life over somewhere and still make good money. Like most doctors in the U.S., Cheryl had a DEA number for prescribing controlled substances, and it was never used. Cheryl also had very little motive to leave. She was close to her family and friends, and she loved her job. The only thing that Jess and I found looking into it a little deeper was that there was a wrongful death lawsuit filed against the hospital Cheryl worked at, and a pediatrician named Cheryl Pearson was named in that lawsuit. We are going to assume this is our Cheryl Pearson we are talking about. The lawsuit was filed 11 months before Cheryl went missing and carried on as these things do for several years past that. So it's not like there was a judgment hanging over her In the long view of civil litigation like this, it was still very early on, and it was hardly a motivator to take off. And before anyone asks, it would also hardly be a motivator for the plaintiffs to do anything nefarious. 
this was the beginning stages, and the case could have gone either way at this point. There was no motive there. Aside from this, Cheryl was thriving in her life. Her family, her friendships, her work, everything was going well. She didn't have serious financial issues. She had a great job, and she had a beautiful home. But that doesn't mean that Cheryl didn't wander off if she was disoriented, which goes back to the early thinking in this case, that she had left her house and driven her car somewhere. Now that we have her car, we know she would have had to have cleaned her car very meticulously, then parked it, and then wandered off. That type of cleaning of the car doesn't really sound like someone who was confused about what they were doing. So due to the lack of evidence that Cheryl left on her own, whether because she wanted to or because she was confused, the investigation started pointing towards foul play, though there really wasn't evidence of that either, but it was the only thing that was making sense. With the $140 in cash being left behind, a robbery gone wrong was ruled out. And since there was no sign of a struggle in the house or with the car, the primary theory is that Cheryl knew the person responsible for her disappearance. She may have even left willingly, though she wasn't staying away willingly. The investigators started with those closest to Cheryl, like the friends, who were the last to see her, and a man she was kind of dating, talking to at the time. His existence is very vague, and I get the impression they weren't really in a relationship at the time. All of the friends' alibis checked out. They also looked at Cheryl's family, and especially at her life insurance beneficiary. Cheryl had about $150,000 in life insurance that was intended for her sister's kids, but her sister, being the adult in the situation, was the direct beneficiary. Lorinda was the one who discovered her sister was missing and was the one who initially mobilized people to look for her. In looking at the sister closer, they learned that Lorinda's husband, Chuck, had a criminal record. At the time, he was out on bond for an arrest related to a bank robbery. He was having legal and financial issues at the time, as well as some reports of marital problems. Internet posters have called Chuck a suspect, but the police did not, do not, and in the world of investigations and defamation, the police's version is the one that counts. So we are not saying Chuck is a suspect. At most, he was a person of interest. According to the investigators, they interviewed Chuck multiple times. He would give some information and they'd check it out. And it would sometimes be consistent with what they already knew, but sometimes it would contradict something someone else said, or even something Chuck had said. That's a big part of why they kept interviewing him. They were trying to get the full story laid out. Chuck did provide his movements for when Cheryl disappeared that night, the next day, and what the investigators have said about this is that they followed up on all of it. They pulled security footage from any store Chuck said he went to in order to confirm it. Sometimes his time would be off, but he was there. Sometimes he was there when he said he was, and sometimes he wasn't. It seems to be very inconsistent. 
but Cheryl's family has publicly said they don't think Chuck was involved. It appears as though he has been cleared after a pretty thorough investigation into him. But the police have not said what finally crossed him off their list. The motive for Chuck would be the life insurance, but here's the thing. You need to prove death to collect a life insurance policy. Making someone disappear, never to be seen again, is not a good strategy. Tennessee law is that someone has to be missing with no signs of life for seven years to be declared dead. Seven years is quite the long game to get life insurance, particularly if you are financially strapped at the time. Life insurance collection rarely fits with missing persons cases. Clear-cut murders, yes, but not people who seem to vanish without a trace. And speaking of without a trace, Cheryl's case did get some national attention in 2006 when it was featured on the TV show called Without a Trace. That show was about missing fictional people, but they would use their platform to bring awareness to actual missing people. In 2009, seven years after her disappearance, Cheryl's family did have her declared legally dead, and 11 months after that, her father passed away. And then 11 months after his death, human remains were found in Lakeland, which is about 10 miles from Bartlett. Two hunters out for a weekend hunt found a skull and some bones. It was clear that the remains had been there for a while. Cheryl was considered a potential match at first based on how close this was to her house, but it was quickly determined that the remains did not belong to a black female. They didn't say how they knew this, but my assumption is forensic examination of the skull and possibly the pelvis gave them an idea of race and gender of the remains. The next major development in this case was in 2013 when an inmate reached out to the police. He said he talked to someone else who knew what happened to Cheryl. He provided a letter with some details, and that pushed the information a bit farther out to some women in Georgia who supposedly knew what happened. The information about this lead that has been made public is thin at best, like a paragraph and a half of information. So we don't know the contents of this tip, just that a tip came in, it was from an inmate, and it pointed to Georgia, and it didn't go anywhere. Within the last few years, there was another media push on this case, and one news agency did reach out to Cheryl's family for participation or statement in their article, and they declined. I don't think it's because they don't want the case to be out there, but I think they're exhausted. Hazel, Cheryl's mother, is in her 80s now. At this point, she has spent 19 years with the case making pretty much no progress. Every media interview is the same questions, and the answers have not changed in 19 years. That is a lot for a family to revisit that trauma. As of this recording in May 2021, there are no named suspects and there are no answers. When Cheryl went missing, she was 37 years old, 5'6 to 5'7, and 160 pounds. She would be 56 years old today. 
There is a large reward in this case. If you have any information, please call the Bartlett Police at 901-385-5558 or call Crime Stoppers anonymously at 901-382-6669 and these numbers will be in the description box. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 